Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom, everybody. So today, what I'd like to do is to, if you haven't started planning, I thought maybe today I could just provoke you into starting that planning. If you are already planning, then I'm going to give you a pat on the back and say, excellent. You're thinking about the food. You're thinking about the meal. You're thinking about the facilities. We all admire Yeshua for being able to go into Jerusalem and just supernaturally. There was uh, a room that was going to be ready for him, and he could send all his disciples out to to get the things that were necessary. I, I also admire that he could walk on water, but I know I can't do that yet. And so for us, Passover does require a significant amount of planning, you know, only if we want it to go well, only if we want it to go smoothly. But I'll also say this too, if you don't have at least one small disaster, you're probably in the minority. There's always something that's going to go wrong. Maybe, you know, the the caterer didn't understand when you said no leaven that you meant like don't put cracker crumbs on the green beans. Um, people don't understand exactly what we do. When we say don't put any pork on something, some people don't think bacon is pork. And they'll bring you something to eat with pork all in it. It's just bacon everywhere. And they oh, no, that's not pork, that's bacon. So clearly, we have understanding and insight that not everybody has. So when you get outside people involved, when you're planning a feast, the potential is there for them to misunderstand. And so just kind of plan for a disaster, too. If in your planning, plan for at least one disaster. And that's... That's usually the way it goes, at least one big one and and maybe some minor ones. But the planning is essential. And I'll I'll tell you why. And I'm referring to the newsletter that I did this week. You notice it wasn't super heavy because the main thing is, like I said, I just want to provoke you a little bit so that, that if you don't have the little notebook out where you're making your Passover plans or your calendar, if that's where you're writing it, wherever you're writing it. One thing that's never bad is to take notes about what goes right and what goes wrong. And the things that go right or that really make you feel as though you've had an encounter, that the the Ruach HaKodesh, that the Holy Spirit was present in the place, write those things down. Our memories do fade throughout the year. Those might be things to continue doing. But if you see that things do go badly wrong, you know, maybe it is in the purchase of the food. Maybe somebody was sent to purchase the food that really didn't understand the, the what chametz is. That, you know, it doesn't mean don't go buy a package of yeast. It means significantly more than don't go buy a package of yeast. And in this way, you're going to teach people, hopefully, what you need them to know about the Passover. And in the process of teaching, you're also learning more as well. You're learning that what you now take for granted, a lot of people now are just learning. And so you're going to be a part of that process for them. So yes, today is it's not heavy. It's just um, to get you thinking about planning for Passover. And you might be doing it with just your family. 
which is fine. It's fine if you just do it with your family. The first Passover was in homes. It doesn't mean that maybe several households weren't sharing a lamb. You say, why is that? Well, it's in the wording. And and like I said, I don't want to try to break down too much of the text today. I don't want it to be that heavy. But as we're reading the text, we realize that one of the ideas is that the lamb should not go to waste. And so what would happen in ancient times, ancient, you know, 2000 years ago, we, we get a lot of commentary from the Second Temple period because that's when they really wrote things down for us. As after the temple is destroyed, we know that the Jewish sages saw a need like, oh, we need to write these things down or we'll, we'll lose the memory of them. We'll forget how they were done when there was a temple. And so we know that hmm, about 50 people would register for a lamb. And what do we mean? This was like, was there a registration page? I mean, did you go online and type in, you know, lamb for a family of eight? Not exactly. It wasn't that formal. But yes, in the sense that you did need to go in together and it you might have had a big enough family for a whole lamb, but the scripture says, you know, you you can also bring other people into it because you want to have that lamb eaten if you can by midnight and you don't want any of it to go to waste. And so when I say register, that's kind of quote unquote, but a certain number of people would agree that they were going to share a lamb for Pesach. And so, you know, the men would take that lamb into the temple and it could be that they simplified it. They didn't have to carry a lamb all the way from their hometown. I imagine that would have been quite an adventure, but they were able to purchase a lamb that had been inspected, already been inspected, been brought up in a special way near Bethlehem and uh, had already been inspected for blemishes And rather than dragging a poor lamb cross country, they could purchase a lamb and then about 50 people, depending on grownups, children, appetites, you know, the age of the grownups, those sorts of things. They knew about how much people would eat and they would go in together to purchase a lamb that would be sacrificed. They would, uh, the men would take the lamb in to be sacrificed And then they would go back and basically barbecue it. And so you can imagine it it would have been like tremendous tailgating in that day and time uh, because not everybody's going to be indoors. They're going to be basically roasting the lamb in these big outdoor ovens. And it might be that there's more than one lamb in that oven. There's lots of community things went on back there, especially community ovens. You know, not everybody had a kitchen the way that we do. Uh, it could get horribly hot in Israel if you had a kitchen in there with a fire going. And so often their ovens would be located outside, say, in a courtyard. And then many people could use that one oven. They would just keep that one oven going all day and pretty much all night. And so you would add your lamb once you had it prepared. And especially with the lambs, there might be special pits that were prepared, especially for Passover, so that you could roast several lambs at one time. And so once the lamb is cooked, then it can be rendered into the smaller pieces. And then how did they eat it? Did they go into a house? They could. Were there probably some (laughs) outdoor dining experiences? Probably when you think of the number of people that would have shown up. 
probably if, if you could locate a house or a room, if you weren't from Jerusalem, that was a nice thing to have. So I would think that when Yeshua sent his disciples and said, you know, there's going to be a room prepared for us, um, that was a big deal. That was a real luxury to travel all that distance and then not have to pretty much just camp out. Now, the lambs, uh, like we say, they only had to eat a piece of the lamb the size of a kazite. Kazite. Uh, zite is an olive. And so kazite is the size of an olive, right? The, the lamb itself didn't form the basis of the meal, the meal part of the Seder, because remember, it's a chag, it's a festival, it's a celebratory festival, and you eat at a celebratory festival. So there was a meal that went along with it, that was understood, that's intrinsic within the definition of a chag. But the holiness of it, the lamb itself was especially holy. And every person, as long as they were of a certain age, they needed to eat a piece of the lamb about the size of an olive. And that fulfilled the commandment. Um, like I say, the, the celebratory part of the meal, that was really something different. The, the lamb wasn't going to be your main course. In other words, that's the way I'm thinking to put it. And the idea was you're a sharer in the sacrifice. By taking this symbolic amount, you're a sharer in the sacrifice. But um, the meal itself is something separate, and it still is. When we do a Seder, you say, okay, now we know that they raised these special lambs in the fields near Bethlehem. And we also know when the birthday of these lambs was. So we know about how big they were. You say, well, if it could feed 50 people... That's a pretty big lamb. Well, not if they're only eating enough of it that's, you know, going to be about that big, about the size of an olive. Each of these lambs would turn a year old on Elul 1, the Hebrew month of Elul. And they would turn a year old on the first of that month, right, at the new moon. So when they had the new moon festival in the month of Elul, it marked the opening of a window. The lambs, well, actually, the, the sacrificial animals or animals that were tithable, their birthdays were all Elul 1, kind of like thoroughbreds today. In the United States, a thoroughbred will turn a year older on January 1st, no matter how old it is. So let's say you had a colt that was born on December 31st. Well, he's going to be a year old on January 1st. And that's why if you're ever in thoroughbred country, like Kentucky, you'll see a lot of the colts being born in January, February, March. They're timed out like that so that they can get as close as they can to a year's growth because in a couple of years, they'll have to compete with colts and fillies their own age. And so if you have a colt that was maybe born in July or August, they're going to turn a year old on January 1st. And that, that's a huge advantage for maybe a cult that was born in early January because they've got that much growth when it comes to the competition. So similar principle with tithable animals. They're going to turn a year old on Elul 1. So if we start counting and, you know, Elul is going to 
fall before the fall feasts. We know that they will fall into that window starting from Elul 1. Now, from then until Passover, you can say this is the lamb of the first year. It had to be a lamb of the first year. So technically, uh, if you want to say, well, what was their specific age? I understand now they've fallen into that window of lamb of the first year. They're going to be somewhere between six months or less. All right. You, You would probably want to find the lambs that were born earlier in that period, as as close to Elul 1 and shortly thereafter as possible, because of course it'll be older. It'll have a little more meat on its bones. But the good news is, yes, one lamb could suffice for many people. Uh, The main point was to share in the suffering of the sacrifice and not to fill your belly with the lamb itself. That's what the meal was for. But what is so interesting is during Second Temple times, if you didn't register ahead of time to share in a lamb, then you weren't permitted to eat from it. You know how some of us like to you know, procrastinate, delay, well, maybe I'll go over here and maybe I'll go over here or maybe I'll eat with them or maybe I'll do this. And we keep procrastinating. And before we know it, the day's upon us. And then you have to rush around at the last minute and say, do you have room on yours? Do you have room on yours? But if they had not done that ahead of time, they weren't allowed to do it because it was considered such a an egregious spiritual oversight. It was like a huge spiritual lapse to wait right up until the time of the feast to do the planning. And that's why I thought this year, let's go ahead and give a heads up and just remind ourselves it's time to start planning for Pesach. We need to have a pretty good idea right now where we're going to spend it, what kind of preparations we need to do, what kind of share do we need to have in this offering as we celebrate. And it, it reminded me of you know, how the Holy Spirit will contend with us. And so many times the Holy Spirit is calling us to salvation, calling us to salvation. And I've heard people say, well, you know, when I straighten my life up, then I'm going to get saved and go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. And I'm like, oh, do you have it backward? <laughs> you need to make that commitment sooner. Don't don't wait till it's cleaned up. That's Yeshua's job. You need to give him your life. Go ahead and, and make that profession of faith in him. Go ahead and accept your salvation. And then you learn how to walk. If you can straighten your life up, you don't need salvation. You don't need Yeshua, but you can't. So you're telling me that day's never going to come. So yeah, a lot of people, they have many opportunities to accept Yeshua as a savior, and yet they just keep refusing or delaying, refusing or delaying. The problem with that is we don't know when the day is coming. We might think we will die old, but how many people who have died a sudden death, an unexpected death, realized one second too late that they had not registered for a lamb. Technically speaking, you could make a last minute purchase, um, go see what was left in the lamb pen and buy one for yourself. But that's a lot of meat for you to have to eat before midnight. That, that was considered really bad form because Passover is a type and shadow of our salvation, but it's really predictive of how we acquire an identity with the Holy Community. We start out at Passover and we might celebrate with a smaller family unit uh, or family and friends. And then we grow together 
And between the spring feast and the fall feast, that's when we begin to acquire this identity as a congregation. We can start looking forward to standing as one people at Shavuot and being judged as a nation at Yom HaKippurim. It's every year we get to practice growing. And so remember, a Chag is not just a celebration. These feasts are also called memorials. They're memorials. They're memorial days. And if you're going to have a memorial day, we need to make it memorable, especially for children, because one of the main points of Passover, it says, you shall teach your children in that day. This is what happened to me. When I came out of Egypt, you have to tell the story in first person. And that part of the Seder where you tell the story of the Exodus, you can always make that memorable. Children should be able to look back as adults, look back to the time that they were children and and be able to tell the stories of the Passover Seders and what was done that year to make it memorable so that they could learn the story of their salvation and their redemption, and their sanctification. And so to do that one year, and it's been many years ago, I dressed up in an Egyptian costume, and I was the plague lady. And a lady from our congregation, wonderful lady, um, Gail Jones, she did my makeup, and she did the full Egyptian makeup thing. And, And I thought, man, this feels like a lot of makeup. And then when I looked in the mirror, it scared me. (laughs) She's like, who is that? (laughs) I look like an Egyptian. And so I planned to make the 10 plagues miserable. I would would introduce each of the 10 plagues. Uh, And I wish I had some photos from that Seder. In all the planning, we just never plan to take pictures, I guess. I'm, there's probably some people from our congregation that have photos that I don't know about. But I was just too busy plaguing people to think about pictures. But I'm going to, as I tell you what I did, what you're going to hear is that's a lot of planning. And this is just for 10 plagues, guys. This is not the meal. This is not preparing the, the community center where we held it. This is not, you know, the administrative part of it, trying to figure out how many people are coming, how many Seder plates we need, how much grape juice we need, how much lettuce we need, all that. That's a huge amount of planning. Just what goes on the Seder plate is huge, even without thinking about the meal itself. But that year I took on the plagues. So I'm I'm not that good at, at administrating things like food, but I thought I can be pretty good at plaguing people. So why don't I do what comes naturally? I will be the plague. And so I had to start thinking months ahead how I would do that. Because first of all, we were um, in a community center and I had to be careful not to make such a big mess that we would have to do a lot of work to clean it up um, or leave a mess for them to clean up, which I'm sure they would have charged extra. But it had to be things that we could clean up fairly quickly. You know, if you're doing it in your own house, you might have a little more tolerance for some rice on the floor. Um, but these had to be things that, you know, would be able to disappear before the stroke of midnight. Not that we would turn into a pumpkin or anything, but it, it might turn into an extra charge on the building. So I started thinking, 
how can we do this? How can we make the plagues memorable? How can we teach the children? And so what I decided to do is when we set up the building, I asked that the children from a certain age on up, they have their own seating kind of in a, the adults were seated around them in a U and then they were also in the tables turned into a U so they could sit together to make it easier for me to plague them because they would have been hard to go from table to table all over the room and, and terrify small children. Um, so let's put all the children in one place and they're, they're much easier to terrify. So we did that. And then I started planning my plagues. The easiest one was turning the water into blood. So what I did is I got a, a big, a tall water pitcher and I made red Kool-Aid and then I went to the market and you could purchase a whole fish at the market. And that's exactly what I did. And it was a big fish too. I don't remember what kind it was, but I purchased a big dead. No, it's dead. It's not like in a tank swimming around. It's already dead. I bought a big fish. And then when it was time for that plague, I had dropped that big fish down into the Kool-Aid and it was a clear glass pitcher. And then I also had another bag where I had gone to Walmart to the sports section and they have these little bags of whole small bait fish. They're kind of dried out. They don't look too sporty, but first of all, I went out and I had the dead fish in the Kool-Aid and I tried to pour each of the kids some Kool-Aid out of that pitcher, which of course that makes them scream and that's wonderful. And so once I was convinced, no, we don't want any of that red Kool-Aid, thank you very much, I threw some of that dried fish uh, onto their table, just kind of scattered over. And then that one I had to kind of be careful with. You might find an alternative there with maybe plastic fish because there was one little kid that did try to eat one of the bait fish. I think somebody stopped her before she swallowed. I don't know what kind of fish it was, but you could probably be more creative than I was with the, the dead fish. But another thing I thought about that I did not do, didn't have time to do it right, because you would have to find kosher fish. And the fish I'm talking about, like gummy worms, the, I, I forget what you call it. Anyway, the same thing as gummy worms. They also make gummy fish, but you have to go the extra mile to find gummy kosher fish because a lot of those gummy candies, they're made with uh, pig gelatin. So you have to find, gummies that are made with beef gelatin or fish, kosher fish gelatin. But I also wanted to do some red jello with some kosher gummy fish inside. And I wanted to serve that as like with the meal um, so they could actually, you know, eat the fish in the red jello and it not be horrifying. Uh, didn't have quite time to get that done. And I'm not sure at this point, I know I have found, uh, kosher gummy sharks in Israel. And I'm sure they have gummy fish too. Next time I'm there, I'm going to take a look at the shuk where they've got all the, the gummy candy and see if I can find some kosher gummy fish. And if I can find some, I'm going to buy a big bag um, just to keep on hand for the next kosher plague. Uh, not because I know a few adults that like gummy fish too. Uh, so, and then the second 
plague. And this one, this did take some planning. Um, I had to drive to Lexington and I had to go to a store that had party pinatas. It had party supplies. And I found this huge green frog pinata. And so I bought the huge frog pinata and went back to Walmart and I bought uh, three packages. It's called catfish stink bait. And they had all kinds. And I just tried to look for the stinkiest one. So when I got the stink bait home, I pulled the plug out of the frog. And then I opened up the stink bait, but I left it in the bag, in the plastic bag, because I was afraid it looked kind of whatever it was. It looked like it might be a little greasy. And I didn't want the grease um, like to kind of go through the frog because that frog was going to sit in the garage for a long time, absorbing the stink. So I just opened the top, but I left the plastic underneath. And so I got all that stink bait into the piñata and made sure, you know, I had it situated right so it wouldn't flop over and the the, the nasty stuff wouldn't soak into the, the cardboard. Um, then I stuck the plug back in and I wrapped it up in a huge hefty garden bag and uh, tied it off. And then I just hung it up in the garage until Passover. And, and I did that over a month before Passover. I want to say it was closer to two months. And a couple of times... I did untie it just to check and see what was happening in there. And it, there was definitely something horrible happening in that hefty bag. So I'd wrap it back up and, and I left it wrapped up until it was time for the second plague. So after the dead fish Kool-Aid, I ran back outside and I, had, I did have a helper out there helping get me ready for the next plague. We untied the piñata and yes, it was horrible. It's the most horrible thing I've ever smelled. Uh, and then I went ahead on top of that. I took the plug off and it was almost unbearable. But it, yeah, it definitely accomplished the stinky frog effect. And so I didn't just do it to the kids. I walked around the kids table swinging the piñata, which made the odor much worse. And of course, there was a lot of Ew, and that sort of thing. It, it was pretty horrible. But I also made a pass around through the room so the adults could appreciate the the stinking frogs as well. And then I had also bought when I got the dead fish. They were also selling frog legs, so I bought some of those frog legs. They just they were just raw, and I threw a few of those onto the kids' table. And as far as I know, no one tried to eat those. Um, again, they're not kosher, so you won't maybe want to have an adult at each table to make sure the smaller ones don't try to stick something in their mouths that's not kosher. But nobody really even cared about the frog legs because the odor of the frog was so bad. I mean, this was a smell so bad you could taste it. And, you know, if you've never eaten catfish, I would think that just smelling that would cure you of ever wanting to eat catfish. Because if that's what catfish eat, why would anybody want to eat a catfish? I mean, this stuff was rank. Now, the third plague was easy, but you, um, you have to kind of go easy. We just used white rice for the lice. In hindsight, I would probably, you know how they do the little bags of rice, maybe sometimes at weddings that are already pre-tied in a tiny little mesh bag. I would think I would maybe pass that out um, to one adult you know, at each table and let them kind of do a little rice throwing so that it falls directly onto the kids' table because that was a lot of vacuuming. 
afterward. So you might come up with a, a better idea for lice on that, but the lice rice baby is the the easiest one. How you would do that, you know, would you want to sprinkle it in their hair or something? I don't know. Um, they'll scream no matter what you do with it, probably. The flies, again, this one's easy. You don't have to work real hard for the flies. I had gone to the dollar store uh, a few weeks before, and at the dollar store for, yes, a dollar, you could buy these bags full of bugs. And so I got bags of flies and grasshoppers for the locusts, dollar bag. And uh, you can pass those out again ahead of time to the parents that are fairly close to the table. And so when it's time for the flies, and it's good to keep them hidden until then. You know, of course, you, if you do it one year after that, they'll be expecting it. But the first time you do it, if you have some adults reach in their pockets and then throw the flies, that'll be a surprise. They'll love it. And this, you won't have to worry about cleanup like the rice because the kids will scoop up the toys to take home. They will take home the plastic flies and the plastic locusts. And if you buy plastic frogs, they'll take those home too. So don't plan on gathering them up to use next year <laughs> because you'd have to follow the kids home to get those back. Um, that's an easy thing, but there might be other things uh, you could think up with the, with the flies. Uh, and again, uh, something else we did, and this was way back in the early days of iTunes, I kind of combed through there. And if I could find a sound effect, like the frogs or the flies, um, when we got down to the hail and um, so forth, you can find like, well, they're more than 20 seconds. Back then, I think I had about 20 seconds of certain ones. If you've got a soundboard, if it's a big enough event that you've got a soundboard with pretty good speakers, uh, when you do the plagues, you can have those sound effects play, right? So the flies, you can get a sound effect for that. The next one was the livestock pestilence. You know, you could get a recording of a sick cow. I mean, the cow may not be sick, but it'll, you know, how cows just kind of beller. We got some in the field next to us. And, you know, when they're separated from their calves at first, they make some some really obnoxiously loud noise, which I would do. But um, if you can get a recording of something like that, where it sounds like a sick cow. And so for the livestock pestilence, um, I had this huge stuffed cow. And so I took some uh, gauze and I bandaged it, you know, I bandaged up its head. I bandaged up, made a cast for its leg and so forth. And then I took a thermometer and I had to kind of bore a little hole in the mouth, but I stuck the thermometer in her mouth. And then we made a, a litter and we laid her on her back in the litter. And then I had a couple of helpers who were like the paramedics. And so we made a few trips around the kids' table. It's like, is there a doctor in the house? Is there, a, I don't think we said veterinarian. We just asked for a doctor. And uh, again, it's, uh, you can dress up your paramedics if you want to. I thought, you know, this little red cross armband or something to show that, you know, they've got a sick cow or whatever. Um, you could do a lot of more fun things with that one. That I just used what I had on hand there. And that took us to the boils. And again, boils needed planning because I had to know 
before the Seder started, who was going to have boils. And I had to have them meet me there because what I did is I bought a kit. You know, if you buy from, um, say, uh, drama supplies or costume supplies, they make these kits where um, you can literally build with the, the makeup and the stuff they put in there. You can make, you know, something that looks like wounds. And this was specifically, uh, you could make boils with it and it even had the, the tint, that red tint on it. So you could make it look like a really angry boil once you built up the boil itself. You could paint it or dye it. I can't remember exactly what it was, but there was a way of making the boil look red and really angry. So my volunteers let me put the boils on their arms before the Seder, and then they pulled their sleeves back down. And then when that plague was announced, that's when they rolled up their sleeves and started moaning and groaning and, you know, grabbing their arms. And at that point, they were doing such a good job. I was a little disturbed at how well they were acting. I mean, people who normally weren't that dramatic were doing a really great job dramatizing how painful their boils were. And then we did an easy one, the hail. And that one is as easy as ping pong balls. All right. The problem with the ping pong balls really wasn't the kids. I thought, you know, these kids are going to pick up the ping pong balls and they're going to be lobbing ping pong balls across the the room the rest of the night. It really wasn't the kids. It was the adults. So <laughs> you may have to have helpers go around with a little bag and uh, collect ping pong balls before the, the Seder can proceed. Again, it was the adult children that, that became more of a problem with the plague of hail. Again, the locust, that's the dollar store. Uh, and again, you don't have to clean them up. They'll be in kids' pockets. If not, go ahead and collect them. And it's really fun if you have a, a congregational meal, if you have Oneg each week, then next week at Oneg, go ahead and put, the flies are great ones, go ahead and put some of those plastic flies into the, the Oneg food and see what happens. That can be fun for all ages. Then the last two, these are the two that can be very memorable because for the younger kids, they can be a little scary. And we don't want to make it too scary for them. I mean, we don't want them to remember Passover is the time that, you know, the adults thought it was fun to scare small children. But we did, I, I really didn't think through the fact that the, the hall that we rented had no windows. So when we turned out the lights, it really was pitch dark. You could not see your hand in front of your face. And usually there's some ambient light you can count on so that you're not in total darkness. And when I cut those lights, I did not realize how dark it would really be. So we cut the lights, which did scare some of the smaller children. And if you know you have smaller children at that point, maybe you could go get them and put them in your lap if you know the darkness is coming. And then we just kind of let darkness flow into the 10th plague which was the killing of the firstborn children. So we didn't cut the lights back on. We left the lights off until the killing of the firstborn. And then beforehand, again, it goes back to planning. You go through and you say, are you, to the men, you say, are you a firstborn? If they were firstborn, then they had to be prepared when that plague was mentioned in the dark. The firstborn men began wailing and, and screaming, and then they staged being dead. 
So they got to decide, you know, whether they were going to slump over the table, you know, kind of drape themselves back over the chair, fall down on the floor. And again, some of the drama was a little disturbing. I just had no idea that they had it in them. And then when we cut the lights back on, there's dead people everywhere. So you can see, yeah, that was really scary for some of the young ones. So if you think they're really too young for that much drama, you might want to think ahead of time or have a do something different. You could still get the message across, the teaching across without being that dramatic. But the older kids had a blast. And I think the men had a blast. <laughs> From what I can tell, the adults were having as much fun as the kids. But if they're really young and you think they might be scared of the lights going out and they might be scared of the wailing and really look around and think that all these people are dead, don't you know traumatize them. We can traumatize them when they get a little bit older. But yeah, well, I hear that for the, some of the younger ones, it, it did keep them awake for several nights. So <laughs> scaring small children, that's my specialty. Um, so yeah, but it, what the point is, you can see it took a lot of planning. The plagues didn't just happen the week of. I started, I had to plan months before to be able to pull all that together with sound effects, with the costume, with getting the firstborn men on board, with getting my people with boils on board, um, having somebody to help me switch out in between the plagues, because that part of the Seder goes pretty fast. If you'll notice, as you're going through the plagues, it's pretty fast. Now, you can slow it down. Right. If you're going to do this, it's, it can still be part of your Seder. You say, well, we know we're going to go slow here. But the main thing is the children probably never forgot that Seder. Uh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure most of the adults won't either. And we're not doing it just for fun. We're doing it so that they will remember the teaching. This is what happened to me when I came out of Egypt. And so even in the midst of the fun, they got to feel a little bit of the, ew, you know, the frogs, because you can only imagine piles of dead frogs all over Egypt, how nasty that would have been. You know, we know how nasty one frog pinata smelled. And so you get a little bit of the memory and, and you can do it through sight. You can do it through sound. You can do it through smell. You can do it through taste. You can use every one of their senses, even wanting to touch the frog legs. You know, that's a dead, unkosher animal. But wanting to touch that or looking at it and say, oh, I don't want to touch that. The more sensory input they have into it, the closer you get to the commandment, which is, this is what happened to me. You have to have that element of the Seder for it to truly be a Seder. And that's what connects you with the children. The children love stories. They love stories. And so by telling them this story, I mean, this is the best scratch and sniff book that ever was, if you can begin to think of things ahead of time to help them not just smell it, but to touch it, to hear it, even turning the lights out, total sensory deprivation at that point, right? But I know you can come up with stuff, and some of you have already come up with things. I've heard people say before some of the stuff they did at a Seder to play out the plagues. And so anything you can do to help those children remember, this is your opportunity. The window is open for them to learn. What else about the Seder planning? Well, so much of it, it's it feels like it's not that spiritual, <laughs> but 
if it weren't important, I don't think like with the Gospels, Yeshua, we can hear him planning. Right. When he and his disciples come into town, in fact, even before they arrive, they're planning. You know, it tells us specifically where he went three days before and so forth as as he's preparing himself to even go into Jerusalem. And so telling the disciples, we're going to go here, you're going to see a man carrying a water jar, and then you follow him, and he's going to take you to a room. Even the prayer in the garden, Yeshua knew what was about to come. He's like, we need to go pray. We need to prepare. And so we need to prepare too. If Yeshua had to prepare, we need to prepare. Paul was really, I mean, he rebuked the Corinthians because of their lack of preparation. And part of the lack of preparation is they didn't prepare for the people who couldn't, who didn't have enough to eat the meal. Because remember, it's a celebration. And so this is when you have your celebratory meals. The You bring the best of what you have. But there were poor members of the congregation at Corinth who didn't have enough. I mean, you have to have enough for the, the four cups of wine. You have to have enough to have a festive meal. You have to have, at least in that day and time, you had to have a little piece of the lamb itself. You had to have nice clothes. You didn't come in wearing rags to a feast. And he says, what's wrong with you people? You're going ahead and you're eating and drinking because you have the supplies to celebrate the Passover. And you got people over here who don't have anything. Why are you not waiting for them? In other words, how can you eat while somebody else cannot celebrate? And so he's taking you back to a lot of the rabbinic literature has to do with making sure every single member of the community has sufficient to have four cups of wine apiece, can purchase the matzah, can purchase the maror, and can purchase the essentials of a festive meal. Even before the destruction of the temple, now the, the egg has come to symbolize the destruction of the temple on the plate. Before the destruction of the temple, the egg was actually part of a discussion. Back then, an egg was a really rich food. And, you know, Yeshua even talks about, like, you know, if you're son asks for an egg, are you going to give him a serpent? Are you going to give him a stone? An egg being, you know, a good gift, a rich food. And so they said, you know, for those who couldn't maybe afford uh, a cut of beef or chicken or goat or lamb or whatever they were eating, for the poor people, they, they really needed two rich foods on the plate to say this was a celebration. And one of the foods that qualified was fish. They said, yeah, you can use fish. That's We can consider that a rich food that's worthy of the celebration. And if you're really poor, use an egg. And they said, yeah, you can take your, your boiled egg and, you know, if you want, spread it over the fish. And that will count as two rich foods if you don't have roast. And so that had entered into the discussion long before the destruction of the second temple. And as times changed, conditions changed, that egg began to represent the destruction of the temple. But it was already there as a rich food. It doesn't have anything to do with Easter eggs. Okay, It doesn't have anything to do with paganism. That's the last thing the rabbis would want to taint that particular meal. But we have to go back into their sandals and say, in that day and time, what was with the egg? Like Yeshua said, it's a rich food. It's a, it's a nice food for a son. And you know what does it say about the Passover? You shall tell your son in that day. This is what happened to me when I came out of Egypt. And so if he's asking you for an egg, if he's asking you for the story, 
You know, don't give him a serpent. Don't give him a stone. Give him the story. And so if that interests you, just figuring out how did the Passover change from the Egyptian Passover? And then after they came out of Egypt, we see that there's a lot more stuff that's added to the Passover in the Torah. And then as we work through the prophets and the writings, we can see that they were doing even more things. If we look at some of the, it's called the pseudepigrapha, these are extra biblical books like Enoch and some of the others. And those books, we can see, oh, well, by this time period, they had added having the cups of wine. By this period, they had added this, singing the song Dayenu. When did that come about? Well, there's nothing recorded that tells us exactly when it started, but we can figure it out because all the stanzas have to do with great miracles that were done, but it's going to stop with the first temple. If it was something written much later or begun much later, it would have probably documented the the second temple, the building of the second temple, right? So it tells you that it's like it's a, probably a very old song. So singing Daye Nu, it's probably ha- it's probably got ancient roots to it. But yes, it's okay to have some lighthearted elements. And what this does is it keeps the children awake, whether they're little children or whether they're disciples in a garden who have eaten enough and it's up late enough, they need some help staying awake. And so this lighthearted fun, this acting out of the exit, the exodus from Egypt, any of this acting out, dramatizing helps kids remember that what happened so long ago, we rehearse it every year in view of a greater exodus, a one that's not going to be exactly like the last one, It's going to be much bigger. And so anything you can do that will help them, I think is a blessing to them as they grow older. And then, especially as we go back into um, the practices of certain Middle Eastern Jewish communities, we see that they did a lot of this acting out. And, you know, the kids were involved in it. The kids played roles uh, in the drama. The adults played roles in the drama. There were certain things that they would do, maybe with uh, the afikomen, that would help keep the younger kids awake. And if, if those things interest you, if you're interested in seeing how the more elaborate modern Seder grew from the very basics of just like kill a lamb, roast it, put blood on the doorpost and get it in the house. <laughs> if it interests you to see how this evolved over time, then workbook six of the creation gospel, the first part of the book is more of a companion to Standing with Israel, which is a book about the Shemone Esrei, the Amidah, the standing prayer that's done three times per day. And the first part of the book, it's really good if you have a Bible study. There, It's got the the study questions and so forth. But the last part, the last third of the book, it traces the development of the Passover Seder. And it answers a lot of those questions because here's what provoked it. Many years ago, my mother-in-law asked me, how did Yeshua keep the Seder? How did he do it? I want to do what he did. And so that got me started. I said, okay, let's go back to the beginning. Here's how they started in Egypt. These are the additional things that were introduced in the Torah later. These are the things we read maybe in the prophets. Uh, We can see some extra things were happening. And then by the time we get into the gospels, like, wow, there's the wine. So let's backtrack and find out 
Where did these cups of wine come in? What do they represent? Why is the cup of Elijah a cup of wrath? Why do we look for Elijah at the door? Those sorts of things interested me. And that's when I realized, well, probably we're not going to be able to do the Seder exactly like Yeshua did, because we don't know exactly. But we can probably get pretty close. But history has marched on since Yeshua was resurrected. And so the Seder plate and some of the things we do will reflect the fact that there was a temple standing when Yeshua was here, and then there wasn't. And so some things were done to move part of the temple services into the Passover Seder so that we wouldn't lose the memory of them, that we would continue to learn them and practice them. Because remember, it's a memorial. It's a memorial feast. And so we want to memorialize as much as we can. We can't do the literal temple service, but there are certain elements of the temple service that are remembered by certain things in the modern Passover Seder. So if that interests you, Creation Gospel Workbook 6. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.